0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. At least that's our name for now. This weekend, we are offering seven conversations from episodes 29 and 30, our real-time coverage of Easel Congress 2023. Plus, on Tuesday, we will be reposting episode 28 with Mike Patel from the Fatty and Liver Alliance, and i interviewing Dr. Tatyana Deshko, Director of Programs at the Alliance for Public Health in Ukraine. These episodes speak for themselves, so I'm going to keep the introduction short and sweet, leaving more time for the conversations themselves. This conversation starts with me asking each Panelists mentioned a poster or presentation we found particularly compelling or valuable. As befits a diverse group, panelists chose a wide range of topics: ways to evaluate NITs and deciding who and when to treat; data on the FGF21 agent Furman. impact of RNA defects on disease and treatment. Two presentations, Michelle Long, looked under the rubric, and I quote, "Miss Opportunities." Unquote, and a discussion driven initially by me on AI, covering both confusions around the term AI and all its uses, and the potential impact of the various technologies described. AI on diagnosis, treatment, and monitoring. For a variety of reasons, the entire community looked forward to this meeting with an intensity and excitement I, at least, had not seen in previous events. These seven conversations suggest that the actual event met or exceeded these high expectations. It started the fact that the Tsunami podcast will spend the next month with five episodes reviewing highlights of meetings in detail. A lot happened, a lot's worth thinking about, a lot worth listening to. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn our Facebook discussion groups.
1: Today's episode is sponsored by Madrigal Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. Madrigal is a clinical-stage biopharmaceutical company pursuing novel therapeutics for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH, a liver disease with high unmet medical need. Madrigal's lead candidate, Resmeterum, is a once-daily oral thyroid hormone receptor, THR beta-selective agonist designed to target key underlying causes of NASH in the liver. For more information, visit www.madrigalpharma.com.
0: I'd like each of us to talk about one paper or one presentation that we saw in this meeting that we think was particularly compelling or valuable and then share with our listeners and each other why you feel
2: that way.
1: Hannes Hochstrom.
2: Yeah, sure, sure. So I'll mix some things we did and some things that was very quite similar to that, and that is both natural history studies looking at uh, getting more information about what is the, really the natural history of this disease and also how we evaluated using repeated measurements of the non-invasive tests. So we, we had one poster on that where we looked at the evolution of Fib4 tests in patients with BIPES-proven NAFLD, and there were other similar posters and presentations looking at that particular topic but maybe using a fiber scan or other tests. And I think the general impression I get from all of these data is that, yeah, you can identify some patients, some patients you can identify by repeating the measurement. But what we found in our study, at least, was that sort of the the pace or the speed between those two tests wasn't predictive in itself. So it's enough to just look at the second test. So it doesn't matter really what you had in your, if you had a FIB4 of 1.5 at the first test and 2.0 at the second one, it's enough to look at that. The patient is now at 2.0, now they are at the high risk. So you don't need to say, well, oh, they came from 1.0 or they come from 0.5. They are now at 2.0, and that's what matters.
0: Interesting. If I, look, I'm, I'm not a physician. I don't, I don't even play one on television. But if anything, I would have thought that that would be the, the natural tendency anyway, would have been to use the most recent result, particularly if there's a significant difference between the two. Is, is, is that not what happens? I mean, do people actually do the kind of thing you just described, Hannes? They say, well, maybe this is 2, but that was 1.5, so I'm not going to worry about it.
3: Michelle Long. We're, we're learning so much, right, about how to interpret change and how to monitor patients. So if, if you look at something like a percent change increase, then it's going to be a larger percent change increase from, uh, if you're starting at a lower number, going to the same higher number. So I think this is conveniently helpful that uh, the one higher number is predictive because percent change, you know, uh, again, like the busy clinician maybe isn't doing that kind of mental math. It's much harder to actually put that into practice and to implement it. So I think it's a very useful insight that
2: will have clinical applications. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the main point, that you don't need to have your clinician looking back in time one year and doctors might not have access to previous charts and so on. So it's enough just to look at that the current value.
1: Mike Battelle.
4: So Roger, I'm going to give you the choice because like, I, one's the science and one is the emotional one like we talked about this morning. So I was going to do the late breaker with Lumba because I have the data. I was at the talk, if I can, so I can share that if people didn't get a chance to go to that. I'm never going to be able to pronounce it. I'll look to Michelle, maybe she can help me with that. Pagosafirmin. Pegosaf- yeah, okay, yeah. So there was significant fibrosis improvement without worsening of NASH, NASH resolution without worsening of fibrosis. The fibrosis results were placebo was zero, PEG 30 milligram, say I get a wave and I just say PEG, 30 milligram, 14%, PEG 44 milligram was 20%. And then the NASH resolution was the placebo at 9%, PEG 30, 60%, and PEG 44, 52%. So the room
0: seemed to be pretty happy, supportive of those results. Thanks, Mike. How does that stack up against afroxafirmin? I seem to remember the afrox numbers were better. That's- that's why I'm asking.
3: Yeah, it's super hard though, Roger, right? Because it's different studies, different settings, different, you know, there's these nuances that are super important. So I always try to be cautious myself about comparing across. But I think, you know, the bottom line, it's nice to see positive results for this drug class again.
0: That's kind of where I was going. Not that Afrox is a better drug than pregnant. We don't know enough to know that yet. But the idea that we've produced results twice and if the Afrox results were better, then it simply leads me to believe that there's even more upside than we thought. I mean, this has looked like an exciting class since the first affirming 2A yet data came out. But it's nice to see that there are two of them now, particularly given that the third original candidate, Peg Bell-Furman, flopped pretty quickly. Rachel, you're up.
3: Rachel
5: Zayas. Excellent. So there's an interesting talk on non-coding RNA. It was called Non-coding RNA in non malignant Liver Disease. It was given by Ben Gao, who is at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse. The talk focused both on ALD as well as NAFLD. For context, microRNAs are small non-coding regions. They are nucleotides that range between 21 to 23 bases. They're involved in post-transcriptional silencing and gene transcription. So microRNAs are starting to be indicated as both having therapeutic potential as well as biomarker potential. And there's been close to 12,000 articles cited on microRNAs across different disease states. For example, in NASH, there has been several microRNAs that have indicated that hepatocytes can uptake extracellular derived um, microRNAs from serum. So for example, adipose-derived microRNA. 155 can be uptaken into hepatocytes, target PPAR gamma, and then support regulation of insulin resistance. Another one very specific, which I found uh, really interesting, was that there's a neutrophil-derived microRNA uh, 223. It has a specific target to hepatocytes and can be taken up into hepatocytes to regulate lipid metabolism and inflammation. So what was interesting about this was they conducted several gene expression studies where they wanted, to determine the mechanism of action for this specific microRNA. So they did some studies and determined that microRNA-223 targets LDLR, which is low-density lipoprotein receptor. So they conducted several knockout studies in mice to determine if this makes patients more susceptible, and it does. They also did several knock-in experiments, and it actually ameliorated NASH in these patients. So I found it interesting because it's multifaceted that these microRNAs have protective mechanisms derived from neutrophils as well as adipose tissue in patients with NASH. So, this is something of interest because I think oftentimes we talk about dysregulators in NASH and what is going wrong, but what protective mechanisms are being induced and supported from other organ crosstalk. So, I found this really interesting, both from a therapeutic as well as a basic
3: science standpoint. And yeah, wanted to share. I'll jump in. Go. Well, I'm going to break the rules and present two just real quick because they have very similar impressions by me, I think. So the first and the, the take-home point is missed opportunities. So the first one is uh, was a really excellent presentation in the general hepatology session, I think on the first day, the days are blending together by uh, Dr. Asko called Vulnerable Offspring, a nationwide Danish cohort study of adverse health outcomes and offspring of parents with ALD versus controls. So super interesting study, please watch the presentation. But the bottom line is they did this large study within the Danish health registry and they found patients that had alcohol-related liver disease diagnosis and then they looked at their offspring and a number of different parts of the study. But they found that the incident rate ratio for offspring was about two and a half times for developing alcohol-related liver disease diagnosis themselves compared compared to controls. And to me, this just shows you the compounded risk of a late diagnosis. So you have the kids, they were around age 30, 30, To when the parents got the diagnosis of ALD. And so that means the kids themselves, you know, could have had 15 or more years of alcohol exposure, not knowing that they're, you know, had this family risk now of alcohol related liver disease and also missed opportunities because there could have been, and they looked at other things like psychiatry visits and other alcohol related hospitalizations and such. So these kids also missed out on services that might have affected their care. And this also is the same thing that you would see in NASH, I believe, as well. You know, when you have a late diagnosis, it means a lot. That individual, but it also means a lot for the family and what they missed out on learning and missed out on the opportunities to to know so they could make changes in their own lives. And then the other paper was a really nice study uh, presented by Vincent Wong, a a randomized controlled study of a clinical care pathway. And, you know, he uh, showed this was implemented in five separate uh, general medical or diabetes clinics in Hong Kong and Malaysia and randomized to automatic calculation of Fib4 or APRI. And from a very blood tests so that they're sitting there in the EHR, but now they're randomized to getting it automatically calculated and a message going to the providers to say, hey, you should do something about this. And that was do a referral or do a fiber scan or some other imaging test. Well, he showed very nicely that even when given that information, 70% of people didn't actually have a change in management and get the appropriate care, whether that be a referral or an imaging test to further risk stratify them according to the guidelines. I mean, certainly it helped better than the ones that were randomized to... Do not receive this automated message because basically none of them, uh, you know, very, very few underwent this care pathway, even though those blood tests are sitting there in the system waiting to be calculated. So I think both of these together highlight opportunities to do better and just the challenge that we have on, on really, really reaching our patients. Jeff McIntyre.
6: Roger, I'll jump in with uh, observations, if I may. You know, coming to these conferences is always such an interesting experience from the patient representative perspective. You know, it reminds me of my time I spent on Capitol Hill in D.C. where, you know, you have two things are going on at the same time. You have your KOLs and you have your senators on stage and what they're saying is very important and carefully monitored and examined and debated. And then you also have kind of the staff and it's as, as notable for who's in the room as who's on stage. And so in these conferences, I frankly get to very few sessions to be able to take a look at the data and whatnot, and will rely on you, the podcasts, on other online things of LinkedIn, et cetera, to be able to kind of review the most important and the top things uh, so over the next couple of days and the most important outcomes. But I want to say that you know, we have a gazillion discussions in the hallways and in the back of the room on on what's going on, what the trends are, if there's this important or specific piece of data. And you may have engaged this already in one of the podcasts, but one of the things that I've seen, I can't quite call it subtext because I think it's more than that, but one of the themes I've seen emerge here that I'm really interesting to, to dig more into is going to be on the use of AI and machine learning in the field. Um, this is the first conference where I've actually, I, I was able to go see a poster very briefly that talked about AI, that talked about its use in identity basically both length and width of fiber before any sort of analog version was able to do that. And that is, as someone who generally tends to be kind of a reluctant acceptor of AI machine learning, especially when we talk about generative AI, it's one of the things that for the first time I was encouraged by that of like, okay, there's a place where I think it can really make an interesting impact and interesting contribution to the field. And so I'm really curious to kind of see where we can go with this and where data... future congresses and future liver meetings goes to be able to examine this because i really don't think that we've got our heads wrapped around ai from a a bunch of different perspectives as we deal with this
0: you know i was gonna raise the same subject from a slightly different point of view so i'm happy you went first i saw four or five different presentations including both in the meeting and then michelle and i were in one together tuesday night in a very very hot restaurant and by that i don't mean the quality of the food uh
3: yeah I was definitely going to say that it was like 35 Celsius, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, it was painful. Now that said, the conversation was good enough that it was worth staying. But Jeff, the observation I was going to make is that I've heard this phrase AI used in so many different contexts. I mean, what you described as AI, right? Stephen Harris did a presentation of Path AI, which was simply taking ordinal reads from individuals and throwing it through an expert algorithm and seeing, could you do a better job? Could you reduce the variance on um, the uh, fibrosis levels and 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 some of the, uh, the NAS scores. I talked to Tim Kendall from Edinburgh gave yesterday, where he was talking about how with AI now, we know that it's not progression and regression are not the same thing. They don't go up and down at the same rate. They don't even go up and down in the same places. He put up a slide where there was one clear fibrosis bridge, w- which would make it F3, but the rest of the liver was clear. So uh, it has the ability to lend tremendous complexity in ways that are helpful. It has ways to answer questions. It also has ways to be misused or undervalued. So I, I think one of the, the struggles that we're all going to have is to help educate ourselves and our stakeholders about the best and appropriate use of AI.
6: I agree with that. And I think that one of the uh, issues that we run into this is an issue that we ran into with Google early on, with people mistaking Google as a knowledge engine and not a search engine, if you will. And there are a couple of different aspects of AI that are getting thrown around with AI. is just kind of the colloquialism that people are using to mean actually several different things. In some instances, AI just simply means processing speed. We can just see a lot more of a lot more stuff. And then sometimes it is machine learning. It's actually the ability to be able to kind of make some deductions off of that. And then sometimes it's the ability to jump from deductions to actually some conclusions on things as well. And there is a distinction even within the AI community that generative AI, like we see with GPT and with BARD coming out now as well, that's going to have significant impacts on learning, on information, on how things are uh, digested by patient populations, but we're still in this sort of infantile stage of it where everybody's excited about it, but we're only now beginning to see how it can be used in the best ways. And I'm still kind of of the opinion that AI is great, but the issues that we're facing with it are still ill-defined because so far the issues that we face are the same issues that we had 10 years ago, that it's their algorithm issues. And so we talk about garbage in, garbage out. The algorithms are things that ultimately we're going to have to rely on. And that's really not a new issue. And if we haven't figured those out by now, I see no indication that AI is going to allow us to to do that going forward as well. Yeah,
3: yeah, I agree with that, uh, Jeff and, and Roger, too. I mean, I think a lot of people when they think about AI, they say, like, okay, I'm going to take a bunch of data, I'm going to put it in a black box, and then I'm going to open the box, and it's going to be really pretty on the other end. And that's like, that's I did AI. That's what happened. So we need more precision around the language, because it's, you know, what does it mean to have AI? And it can be a bit scary. um if like, like, like are we, is the computer taking over? Is this like the singularity or something? So we need to be very clear about what exactly is happening uh, and what exactly do we mean? Because otherwise it's just going to get super confusing. And if we don't even understand it as a scientific community and we can't articulate that and explain it to each other, how do we expect our stakeholders, you know, our patients, the other people involved, regulators as well, you know, to make sense of this. So it's, it's, it's on, the burden is on us to, to be more transparent fair
4: and clear. I wanted to follow up what Jeff said and, and Michelle a little bit too, the the, the chat from the chat GPT side and, and the knowledge translation to patients and simplifying language. The problem is, and we, Roger and I were in uh, one of the media sessions and they said that the way it's working now, it basically takes information that's available. And in this case, about a year and a half ago, it's not even that current yet. But if 60 or 70% of the data out there is biased in some way, the AI will summarize the same bias. It's not creating new information. So that's one of the cautions that we have to ensure that the you know the starting point is is valid.
6: Yeah, we could uh, easily fall into the rabbit hole of talking about AI, which hopefully will come up on a future episode here, Roger. But I just kind of want to come back to the original point, which was that this poster that I was able to see for a little bit was a really cool application. And I really liked that. I thought it was really practical. It really showed that, oh, wow, we're picking up on length and, and thickness of fiber acceleration, whereas previously we would not have identified that. And that's a really cool thing. I mean, I think that's got some real practical implications. And that's something that could serve patients. It could serve a variety of aspects of the field really well. I
0: I think that's absolutely right. And my only comment beyond that would be, it would be a shame if the baby were to get thrown out with bathwater because things that were described as AI, in fact, turned out not to be helpful or counter-helpful, if you will, and raised too much skepticism about the entire idea. I'm not going to go into it right now, but um, in one of the conversations I was in this morning, I took 20 minutes and laid out a scenario of how exactly that thing could happen. In In a very hot restaurant on Tuesday night, a wise woman I know made a comment that that's a branding problem. but And 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 I agree with that, uh, Michelle. I agreed, at the t- I agreed at the time silently. I'll agree now vocally. But that's what's happening. Now, everybody wants to be called AI. I mean, I, I live in a place called New Hope, Pennsylvania. We're about 25 miles from Princeton. And Princeton is a prestige address. So everything for 15 miles, whatever direction of Princeton they are, claims to be in the Princeton Post Office. And if you're not, then you call your development Princeton Muse or Princeton Hunt or Princeton whatever. And you could be a county over. You could have a different government representation. You could be in a completely different zip zone
1: you call yourself Princeton? So we got to watch for that. Today's episode has been sponsored by Madrigal Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Madrigal is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company pursuing novel therapeutics for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH, a liver disease with high unmet medical need. Madrigal's lead candidate, Resmetaram, is a once daily oral thyroid hormone receptor, THR beta selective agonist designed to target key underlying causes of NASH in the liver. For more information, visit www.madrigalpharma.com. And now,
0: back to Roger.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions
0: or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week begins our five episode review of Key Easel Congress findings. Also, Keep an eye and ear out on LinkedIn and Facebook for invitations to share your thoughts on our upcoming brand change, given that, as people keep writing, I quote, "Dash is dead. Long live Mash and Nassau, end of quote. So until then, stay safe, surf on. If you're in the States, enjoy the July 4th weekend, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.